Hey, it's been a minute. I'm back, baby. Let's go. Welcome to the Russell Westcott Podcast, helping real estate investors like you acquire the inspiration, knowledge, and skills that you need to start, grow, and scale the real estate investing portfolio of your dreams. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Russell Westcott here. So welcome back. Yeah, I've had a few... Uh, couple emails and some people that have reached out and say, Russ, uh, what's going on with the old podcast Rooney there? You've been uh, haven't had an episode in a little while. What's what's shaking there? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm about to say something here, but and it might sound like an excuse, but it's just the truth is um, I've been busy. I've been actually extremely busy. I've probably taken more action and within acquisitions on my real estate portfolio this past, you know, Six months, probably more than a year. The past year has been extremely bonkers on what we've been doing with the old portfolio and acquisition side of things. Now, rest assured, I'm going to share all the details with you. As you know, I'm an open book. I wear you know my heart in my sleeve, and I share everything that we're we're up to. And we've been busy. We've been really on the acquisition hunt here. We've got four projects on the go. There's 25 building 25 units, and there's more coming. We're funny. The actions that we've took over a year ago now are finally starting to really germinate and really starting to take root. And we're now um, coming in and we're just starting to grow and scale this sucker. And um, I've just been fired up. I'm, I'm honestly more excited about real estate now than I have probably been in 23 years. And I feel the, the kind of where I feel right now where I'm at in this thing is Remember, I told a lot of the story when I first got started and I bought a property a month for five years and all that kind of stuff. I feel that level of on fire and that level of excitement that's happening right now within my portfolio. Now, lots is happening and I'm not going to share all those details here with you, but rest assured I have, I'm looking at my little spreadsheet here. I have one, two, three, I have eight, eight episodes in the can and eight episodes that are coming out. So we have at least two more months. Uh, are coming into the back part of 2023. The rest of the year is locked and loaded for the rest of the year, an episode on a weekly basis. Okay, gang? And I I will 100% spill spill all the leaves. Spill all the leaves? Spill all the beans? No, spill all the tea leaves? <laughs> I don't even know what kind of saying I'm, I'm doing. So, so just as an FYI, gang, this is very late on a Sunday night. And I want to get this one done because I want to hit the deadline. And I have a, a very crazy, busy week upcoming. And I wanted to get this one out the door um, before the end of the weekend so I can hit the ground running for the upcoming week. So rest assured, we have a tremendous amount of information coming. More episodes of the podcast are dropping very soon. And I'm not going to go on and on in this one. You're going to be hearing an awful lot about me, myself, and Sort of what I've been up to a little bit. This was an episode I recorded early, probably late spring, early summer, maybe. Probably would have been, maybe it was in June and July. Um, it was a, I was an, a guest on L. Ray Noble's podcast, and he shared that on his wonderful channel, and he gave me permission to share that out to mine. So I just kind of gave a little bit of a, a teaser about what's happening and some tips and how I analyze markets and all that kind of wonderful stuff. It's a long form episode. It's over an hour, hour and probably 20 minutes after it's all said and done. And uh, we go into a lot of depth, but that's what I'm going to tell. I'm just going to set this episode up for you to really dive into. 
but I am going to make a commitment to share a lot about what's cooking on the real estate portfolio side. Gang, I'm, I've honestly, you know, how do I best describe it? And I think I've shared a little bit with this, but the best way to describe it is there are some forces at play that are, I haven't seen happen in 23 years of being a real estate investment investor. And I think it's high time to take advantage of those opportunities at play right now. And I will share that on upcoming episodes. In the meantime, please enjoy this episode with myself and L. Ray Noble. Joining us today is the JV Jedi himself, Mr. Russell Westcott. Russell, I feel like you don't need an introduction. People should already know who you are. But for those poor souls who, who just don't, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got started in real estate and your journey to this point? Oh, wow. Well, there's a big question. But, but first of all, uh, El Ray, thank you very much. I'm very honored to have this conversation. Uh, it was about a, what was it, about a month ago. I, I, I get so mixed up. Some of these months are just all blending ago. in yeah. together. I was out presenting at the uh, Mogul Mastermind Group out in Edmonton, and we connected out there. And I... You know, so so a couple things first for you. Number one is you're doing a hell of a job with what you're doing with this podcast and providing some really good, top-notch quality content and uh, interviews with uh, some of the the players. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm not lumping myself in with that that category yet, but uh, and you're just helping and you're serving and and most importantly, I wanted to congratulate you. I understand you just recently got licensed in the beautiful city of Edmonton under the mogul mogul team, and you're out there. Yeah pounding the pavement and finding really good deals and opportunities for investor clients. So I just wanted to congratulate you and wish you all the best on this, uh, this new journey that you're on, my brother. Thank you, Russell. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. Well, um, I, I didn't try to deflect that question, <laughs> but, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, us, us typical Canadians, sometimes we're very humble and we're very shy. And the last thing we want to yeah. talk about is ourselves, right? Um, so I'll, I'll try my best uh, to answer that question. How did I get started in real estate? And I've told this story different times and told, told it many different times. And I'm sure if people are listening on my podcast or your podcast or seen things, they've heard it. But I'm going to share maybe a, a different take on my, uh, how I got started. How I really got started was um, I, I you know, was climbing the corporate ladder with, with work. I was working for, at that time, Kraft Foods. Um, I started in Saskatoon and then I was in like four different cities in Western Canada. I was out in Vancouver and I was renting a basement suite from a room with a roommate and, and out there. And, you know, I had that, that birthday that kicked in one of those birthdays that has the zero at the end. So I turned 30, right. And from a self pro diagnosed Peter Pan syndrome is I was asked the question is what do I want to do when I actually grow up and things like that. And I noticed that uh, it was it was going down a, the path was not going the right direction. It really wasn't. Um, so I had to make some pivots and some hard changes. And um, lo and behold, like many people's story that you've probably have heard, they discovered Rich Dad Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, devoured that book. Um, kind of it changed my life on a course of pa- action I was going. And then at that time, I, I just slowly got into real estate, and I had no, I had no business being a real estate investor. I grew up in small town, Saskatchewan. I grew up um, in a mobile home park and I had never even bought a property until into my thirties. So I, I had no experience 
but what the hell? Let's just dive in with both feet and let's just uh, sink yeah. or swim and let's figure it out. So really got got hooked on real estate. Um, I have lots of stories. Each property that you buy has a different story on things. And I could I have a really fun story I could share with your your listeners as well about how something from 20 years ago has actually come full circle and has surfaced again for me here. But uh, this is your show. I just want to make sure I'm here to help and serve. Russell, firstly, for everyone listening out there, Russell has this like control panel where he has a whole bunch of effects. I feel like just after that, you could just drop oh, a bomb. Well, well if, um, you, if you want, so I'm <laughs> dropping some fire. Ooh, wee, it's getting hot in here, brother. <laughs> Hang on. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know what I love, Russell, is is the fact that you, you highlighted your age and where you got started. I think a lot of people feel like, is it too late? Should I have started? I wish I had started a whole lot earlier. And the fact that you decided from your 30th birthday to make that. That in itself, I feel like is very inspirational for a lot of listeners out there is that it's never too late to get started and and uh, and, well, and pursue that path of real estate. Here's investing. here's I'm going to just add to that, El Rey, is, um, it's never too late and it's never too early, to be honest. Um, I strongly encourage many of the people that I'm working with, many people I'm coaching and helping out right now are by and large in late twenties, early thirties, fairly new marriage, brand new babies in, in many cases. And they're all sitting there going, holy macaroni. I've got these two beautiful little babies here. Uh, 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 uh now what? <laughs> right? yeah. And then, so they're just looking for people that have been down the path before them, people who have made all the mistakes, people who have stepped on all the landmines, people that have 20 plus years of experience of doing that. And those are the primary, the people that I'm working with now. And I, you know, I had one of those, you know, to take the story, another uh, chapter on another birthday about a few years ago, another one that ended with zero on my 50th birthday. I had another one of those moments was, have I done enough? Have I contributed enough? Have I poured into my community? Have I paid back everything that I've learned to more people? Have I grown my audience and inspired a new generation of real estate investors? Have I done that? And if I was to be brutally honest, my answer is no way. I haven't even come close to doing that. So at that time, that's when I decided to start doing more podcasting, more YouTube channels, getting on things like this, doing more live stage presentations and just it's my obligation to share with the next generation of people of all the mistakes I've made, all the wins I've had, but more importantly, what are the biggest lessons I've learned so people don't have as painful of a journey going forward as I potentially had along the way. I love that. And that is such a strong why. And I think that's why you've, I mean, we were chatting before this about how much you've put out there and how much you've done. And at the the why matches the performance that you've put out there. Um, now, Russell, I I've, I've gotten a few of these questions. You know, just this last year, two years actually, has been quite the roller coaster for investors, right? Um, you know, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. Can you share your experience as an investor in Alberta, more specifically, um, how economic factors influence your investment decision? Yeah. Now, now there's a big one, and, and we'll, we'll take some time and unpack that. Um, but here's what I'm going to share with uh, the start that conversation context. So I have the great honor and privilege of working with people across the country, okay? Um, literally from Vancouver Island to Atlantic Canada and everywhere in between. Do I have a 
I've got, yeah, absolute clients in Manitoba as well. Um, real estate is local and not only just local, it's actually extremely hyper local at the same time, because for example, what some people are filling out in Ontario and British Columbia might be completely different. If they said what they're feeling out in Ontario, where the market's starting to gyrate a little bit, prices have maybe come down over the last year, they start to go back up again, then all of a sudden interest rates kick in again and people get jittery again and listings are starting to grow and people are, are collapsing contracts and, you know, people in Ontario are just going, geez, the, the market's uh, very roller coasterish right now. However, if we go to Edmonton or Calgary and you're sitting there and you talk to somebody who's investing in, say, Calgary or Edmonton, and they're going, geez, we can't even find inventory right now. We have 200 applications for rental people coming through. Our rents are going up significantly. Yeah. I, I need to get more properties under my belt, right? So, so everything is completely localized and it's hyper local. Okay. So just I'm because there'll be a national audience that will listen to this. So I just wanted to just uh, frame that for everybody first. But we will definitely talk Alberta because that's kind of near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, that's where you're a licensed agent in Edmonton. I live in Vancouver, suburb of Vancouver, but I invest out in Alberta. And uh, there's a lot of really positive things going on in Alberta right now. Like it, it's, it's crazy to, to think about some of the activities that are going on. And now, don't get me wrong. We had a very, like we had fi a 15-year flatness at best where things were nothing was going on. It was just literally, it was just flat, if not a little down, little up, whatever, for 15 years. Finally, over this past um, year, and I think the next growth cycle in Alberta is just starting now. Like there's, there's going to be another seven to 10 year significant run up in the Alberta marketplace of, of many things that are happening. And that's, I'm, I'm, going as hard as I possibly can right now to get as many projects under go right right now. This week alone, we had four offers accepted and we've had, we literally have 19, 18, 19, 19 units in construction mode right now. And I'm, I'm actively searching out for more because I believe there's a huge window of opportunity in Alberta right now. And we can go many different directions on that, on that conversation. So how, how's that for a start? I love it. I can't <laughs> wait to unpack it, to be honest. I'm yeah. excited. <laughs> okay, so, so here's, um, so, so go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'm going to grab a drink. No, no, no. All good. All good. I just wanted to ask when evaluating potential real estate investments in Alberta, what, like, what are some key economic indicators that you're considering? Now, I know you said things are starting to ramp up. What, what are you looking for? Yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the framework that I look at is now you can go extremely in depth and you can geek out onto every stats can and every report you can find out there. I like to, and don't get me wrong, please do, and please go into it. And the deeper you unpack it and the deeper you un go in the layers of the onion deeper, the, the more the answer, in my opinion, will keep coming out to the same answer. But here's my simple three framework of analyzing a market. So if we were to do a Venn diagram, so I'm going to try it out. There's a Venn, you know what a Venn diagram is? If you have three circles of a Venn diagram and then there's something in the middle, Okay, so yeah, circle yeah. number one of the Venn diagram is economic activity, okay? And I'll unpack these each more, but I'll just talk about what are the three uh, circles first. So economic activ activity is number one. The second one is the people, people, population, 
where people are moving migrations, things like that. And then the third one is market. So economic, then um, people, then market. Okay, so let's bust down the first one. Economic activity. Is the economy churning in your marketplace? Then, then how do you find those numbers out? You find that out through GDP. Where's the GDP going? Is the GDP going up? Is it flat? Is it down? How's it compared to the national number? In Alberta right now, GDP is leading the country and it's forecasted to lead the country for the next couple of years. Quite easy. And I honestly think they've understated the GDP activity that's going on. The next is um, infrastructure, like infrastructure spending. Are, are, are there projects being approved in the area? Are there new roads and streets and LRTs and um, big giant um, uh, um, um, industrial pr- projects going on? Like right now, and I think I heard it at your guys' event last month in Edmonton, there's 200 capital projects going on in the city of Edmonton right now. Like, honest to goodness, go on, drive the West LRT line where the new stations and everything's going there. And first of all, you'll be oh, all, yeah. everybody's upset that there's all this <laughs> stuff going on and there's traffic jams and everything the traffic, there. Yeah. I drove that the last time and I was stuck in traffic and stuck in all the construction and I was sitting there rubbing my hands together because that's what you look for. You look for those things. Yeah. You look for that activity. There's billion dollar projects. Like go go jump onto um, the Industrial Heartland website and I think it's, what is it, something like $40 billion worth, $45 billion worth of projects that are planned up there and some, you know, Tens of thousands of jobs that are planned up there. Okay. So I think that's industrialheartland.com or industrialheartland.ca. So you just go through that or you go and you drive through different areas. Just go take a drive up into um, the Blatchford area or, or, or Griesbach or is it Griesbach or Griesbach? Everybody pronounces it a little different. I've heard it pronounced both ways myself, yep. and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> and then just go through and just check out all this, all the building, all the construction that's going on. Now, why is yep. all this economic activity happening is because people are coming into Alberta again. Um, if you actually look at, um, if you can find an interprovincial migration or immigration graphs, you'll see that Alberta is setting records again. They're setting a record about the amount of people moving into the town, town, cities. Edmonton is forecasted to add another million more people in the next 15 to 20 years, right? And if you're going to add another fi- million people to a population of a million plus, you know, it doesn't take my sixth grade Saskatchewan education to figure out that that's probably going to double in 15 years. Then the question you're going to ask is, where is everybody going to live? Where is everybody going to rent? And, and if you actually then go follow it back even further, and this is getting into the market a little bit, you will find over the last couple of years, there's actually been a shortage of new houses being built over the last couple of years, right? So the, the challenge that's going to have, and I, I've made this prediction, and I forecast by spring of 2024 in Edmonton, there's going to be a shortage of new houses to, uh, that are available for people to take possession of. So the market is going to jump up even more. Um, the other forecast I've just recently seen is that... Um, Alberta is forecasted to surpass British Columbia in the next 15 to 20 years as the third most populous province in the country. Okay. So if you have people moving in, if you have um, 
positive migration of people moving in. And you actually have a little bit of a shortage of houses that are on, like go talk to somebody in Calgary. There's hundred percent, there's a shortage and what happens in Calgary will move up to Edmonton. Um, it's very positive for what you don't need to be a rocket surgeon to figure out all those kind of things of what's going on in the marketplace. Now, so when you start factoring in the people, so then now I take a look at the people. Okay. Are the people working in Alberta? Absolutely. If you need a job, Alberta's calling, go to Alberta, get a job. Okay. So they're, they're working. Are they earning more money? Absolutely. Their earnings, Alberta has some of the highest wages in the country out there right now. So the people earn more money. Now, are, are, do they keep more money? Well, 100% because they have, they, they have some of the most highest disposable incomes in, in the marketplace. Yeah. You don't have PSTs. You, I think your liquor taxes are lower. Smoke taxes are lower. Gas taxes are lower. You're paying a buck 20 for gas. I, we're paying 210 for gas out here in no Vancouver. Way. Okay. Um, so you have more money in your pocket. And what happens when you have more money in your pocket? You spend it on things. You buy cars, you buy boats, you take trips, you buy houses, things like that. Okay. So you have all that. And then especially because Alberta market is affordable, which we'll get into the affordability uh, numbers here in a second. Once we get into that kind of thing, um, what you're finding is an awful lot of people that are moving to Alberta just because it's affordable. And mainly the people that are moving to Alberta are younger people, younger, uh, mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties, younger population moving in. They're looking to potentially buy a, a house with a yard, potentially start a family, work, earn money, spend more money in the economy. And you're seeing the average age in Alberta is starting to go down there. That's a very positive sign for an economic uh, growth of what's going to happen in the housing market, because you start getting those people coming in, they're younger. And they spend more money, right? And they're going to look to buy a house. That's very positive for the housing market. Okay, so then the third part of the Venn diagram is talking about the housing market. Right now, the supply-demand curve within Edmonton is very balanced. Calgary, it's out of whack at the moment. Way too much demand, too little supply. But that's going to come to Edmonton very soon. But right now, it's balanced. But the most important thing is the market is affordable. Like you honestly can get into a really nice house in Edmonton. And let's just say you had a rental helper of a basement suite. You could get into that for 500 to 550,000 for a brand new house and have a $1,100 mortgage helper in your basement, right? So compare that to out in many other markets where you have to pay $800,000 for a townhouse in some markets like that. So Lots of people are moving in, the supply and the demand, the housing inventory is getting to a point where I just see nothing but positive momentum going on. And I also see positive momentum on the rental market as well. Uh, sorry, I'm going a, a little bit fast and a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, off tangent here, but can you tell I'm no, excited? I'm can you going. tell I'm excited about what's going on? I absolutely can. <laughs> <laughs> So no, it's, and not only am I excited and that's what the research is pointing to, I, we're, yeah. we're putting our, our, ours and our investment partners and our capital partners, we're putting that capital to work at the same time. Like we're putting literally where the money where the mouth is and we're, yeah. we're, we're trying to get as many opportunities as we see fit. And, and there's just some crazy, um, deals that are happening. Deals, maybe maybe the best way to describe it, crazy opportunities that are happening um, within infill in Edmonton right now too, of being able to take a piece of land 
that has some very favorable subdivision that you can subdivide. And where there was once one, it now turns into six or more. Okay. Like it's huge. Like I haven't seen this opportunity in like 20 years in some respects. Oh, 100%. So much of what you say just hit so hard there because you are absolutely right. You know, I, I, I have people from all over the country that um, there's investors and then people that are just moving because barrier of entry is so much lower the side to get in on an investing standpoint. And then for just your standard homeowner, you get so much more home, right? Yep. Um, you are absolutely right. And again, for like zoning, zoning is, is becoming a whole lot more favorable, adding more units to, to lots. And there's a lot of that just, just went out of whack there. <laughs> zoning is a lot more favorable and, um, there's a lot of potential to be adding more units to, to Russell. Um, so no, believe me, you didn't go off on a tangent. I was loving it. I just wanted you to keep going. I'm like, yep. you know, to be honest, Russell could be running this podcast by himself. By the way, for everyone listening, Russell has his own. So I'm going to leave that in the description. Please go check it out. Yeah. Um, now, Russell, are there any particular regions or cities in Alberta that you find especially attractive uh, for real estate investing and why? Well, everybody's a little different on, the, on that, that conversation. Well, obviously, the natural answer is we're talking to two people that invest in Edmonton. So <laughs> we're putting both our money <laughs> to work in Edmonton. So I 100% encourage that. Um, however, I work with clients that love Calgary and the, the Calgary area. I have some clients that are doing extremely well in Lethbridge right now, too. I have a client out on one of the Vancouver Islands that he's buying up um, small to medium-sized apartment buildings in rural Alberta, in the Innisfails, in the Brooks, in the in the Medicine Hats, and he's just filling yes. his filling all that with all those um, small and mid-tier um, apartment buildings and those. And I think he's up. To, I think he's doubled his portfolio in the last twelve months. So everybody's a little bit different. Or I have a, a good friend of mine that's just crushing it up in Grand Prairie right now too, on things like that. Uh, some markets are, are doing very well. And then in some markets in Alberta are not doing as <laughs> that great. Like, to be honest, uh, um, you know, I have some properties up in Peace River and Peace River's dead at the moment. Um, I just wish that all the stuff that's going on in Grand Prairie would just flow over to, to Peace River, but it's not flowing over there. So my, my model typically is um, I like to stick to the bigger centers. I like to stick between the corridor between Calgary and Edmonton. I think that's where the bulk of the population and growth that's going to happen is that corridor between Calgary and Edmonton. And my primary model that I like to look at is in Edmonton, just because of the favorability of, of, of what I call the perfect storm. Okay. Now the perfect storm up in Edmonton right now, in a good way, don't get me wrong. A perfect storm can actually crush you at the same time, but this is a perfect storm in a good thing. Number one, the perfect storm in a good way is um, the densification rules have just recently changed in, in Edmonton. Okay. And you have an opportunity to essentially take one piece of land and subdivide and add up when you're done, you can have up to six to eight and or more in, in many respects. So the densification rules have just completely changed the game. The second number is what we talked about earlier of that three perfect storm is all the economic fundamentals have just really pointed positive. So we've talked in depth about that today. And then the third perfect storm that's just surfaced up is then there's some financing opportunities, some financing products that have just come out that I haven't in 20 years seen this good of an opportunity. Like in 20 years, and I'm specifically talking about the MLI Select program, 
where you literally can get into um, a multi-unit property for 5% down, 50-year amortizations, uh, discounted rates, and you can get into that. I haven't seen a product like that in, in 23 years of doing this. So if you factor in the densification rules, okay, the economic activity, and the financing opportunities, you know, sign me up, brother. You know, I'm going to as hard as I can to really to fill as many orders as I can for the next, the next, you know, three to five years. I'm, I'm going to town. So watch out, Edmontonians. We're buying it up for a home. <laughs> I've noticed that. I noticed there's a lot of competition, and I think a lot of it comes from, from other provinces. Um, I think people have caught on. Russell, you've been spraying this too far out, man. <laughs> well, I should, I should maybe. What it was a master, a master ang, a master angler never shares his fishing hole, right? So I, I should, I should probably stop this. Okay, so everybody that's listening to this, just rewind like uh, fit 20, 25 minutes ago and just ignore everything I just said, please. Edmonton is not closed for business. Do not invest in Edmonton. <laughs> Now, now, Russell, I know you, you alluded to the MLI, and I think people are going crazy for that. Do you find that there's still opportunities in the residential space, given the, all the incentives that's pushing towards the commercial um, multifamily side? Are you still investing on the residential side as well, or are you just jumping full swing into um, the commercial side? Well, I'm, I'm, do, do you want me to let you in on a secret here? Or is your, or is your audience, yeah, yeah. Would your audience like a little secret? Um, the really, <laughs> the really cool thing is if you do it well, you can do both at the same time. And that's, open your bitch that. <laughs> that's what, that's what I, that's what we're doing right now, especially if you can start combining multiple single family unit or multiple single family properties together over one umbrella, you can actually get a commercial lending over all, over the whole package. Now it's, it's, it's to be honest, a lot of people don't know. Some people do probably if they listen to your podcast or my podcast, they know this, but there is truly an opportunity that's just literally just opened up over the last little while. And I, I'm, I'm hesitant to share all this because I know lots of people will be asking questions and stuff like that, but it is, it is this good. It's it, honestly, the analogy I use is remember the old Ikea commercial where the couple was sitting in the car and the, the, the spouse was in there shopping and she got such good deals and such good opportunities to go there, start the car, start the car. Cause I think they stole something almost. That's, that's what I'm sharing with people right now is happening. Like you literally, if you can get, like, I'll give you an example. This is something that we're writing and, and we're just getting the numbers together right now. If you can get, because the zoning bylaws have changed, if you can get a house, you can put a suite into it and a garage suite on it on one property. Okay. So three units, that just changed. Before you could either have a basement suite or a garage suite, you couldn't have both. Now you can have both. So some people's going, well, that's three units, Russ. You, you can't get commercial financing for that. But if you can get two of them side by each, you now have six units. Or if you can get three of them side by each, you now have nine, three, six, nine, 12, 15. You're now doing it like Lego. Okay. And you literally, let's say you just get two, you can get two lots beside each other where you can build those three house combos on it. You can put one commercial umbrella over it, over six units, and you can get that MLI select program. And in many cases, um, applying for commercial financing. There's lots of criteria and there's lots of red tape and it takes a long time and there's lots of fine print and there's lots of hoops and jumps and firstborns that you have to sign over to and all the qualification. But in that realm, if you qualify and your partners qualify, 
there really is no cap on how many mortgages you potentially get. As a matter of fact, in the commercial world, they sit there and go, you have lots of properties. All right, celebrate. More the better, the better your application is. They don't cap you at five properties. They don't cap you at those kind of things. Like, don't get me wrong. It's expensive money. Like, it's extremely expensive. But if you're able to get extremely good terms, um, by all means, it's not the cost of the money. It's the availability of the money that matters more. And one of the projects we're doing right now just got an offer accepted out in Beaumont right now where we have three lots putting together. We're going to be building three townhomes on them all joined together. The two outside ones will have uh, basement suites in it. And then we have two suites in the garage. So we actually have a seven unit build going over three lots and we're able to get a commercial umbrella financing over top of that. Okay. So it, I'm hesitant about putting it out there, but you know what? My, my strategy and my motto is just share everything. You know, not every, I'm here to help and serve and help others take advantage of these opportunities. But this is an opportunity that I haven't seen in 20 years, truly. And, and um, gang, don't sleep on this. Really learn about it, get involved in it. And I have a, I have a fun story to share about one of the one that got away a little regret. You have a moment for a story there, Elray? Please. Okay. So please dive dive right in. Okay. So the story goes as follows, and 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 it's gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna really challenge all the memory cells here a little bit on the old memory bank on the computer. I might have to do a a, a hard reboot on the old computer. But this was um let's call it twenty two thousand three when I first got started. So twenty years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had bought maybe a place or two in Edmonton. I, I had bought a couple townhouses in Edmonton for, you know, like the $80,000 range. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a baller. I'm the king of the world. Like everything's great. And where I was living in Burnaby, British Columbia, still renting with my roommate, we lived in a basement suite. Um, I was noticing in our area, in our neighborhood that, um, I was noticing houses were being knocked down. And I was just kind of following and watching. And then all of a sudden they were starting to build new houses. They were building um, a front and back duplex on that. So essentially where there was one house, they subdivided the land, put on a front and back duplex. So where there was once one, there's now four. Okay. Um, so I was in there, hmm, interesting. I just got into real estate and I thought that was kind of exciting and stuff. So I, I noticed beside me, I, I would go out and I'd pick the blueberries and the blackberries in this empty lot beside us where we lived. And I go, I wonder if this piece of land here would work for something like that. So I, lo and behold, went down to the city hall and tracked down the owner and wrote them a couple letters. Yeah, mail, right? The old snail mail. And they got back to me and they said, yeah, sure. We'd love to sell you the property. It's $460,000. And I went, what? $460,000? I've never bought a property. And the highest property I've ever bought had a house on it that I could rent for. And it was $80,000. And I'm just about had a heart attack. And then so, and I was way too scared. I was just too scared. Fear got the best of me. Didn't pull the trigger, but I watched the neighborhood still develop. And I did finally meet with a person that told me some of the numbers of what they were doing. They bought the property, they subdivided it, and then they built on it and they had front and back duplexes. So they bought the property for, let's say, 450. They put about 1.4 million and change into it. Um, they're into it with all their costs for about 1.8, 1.85, and they sold each of those half duplexes for 500,000 each. So they sold it for 2 million and their costs were about 1.8 to 1.85. So they made a couple hundred thousand bucks on doing a transaction like that. I go, Hmm, I, I, if I would have known that I could have done things a little bit differently. Okay. So that was 20, 
20 years ago. Um, I just pulled up in that same neighborhood. I just pulled up what those half duplexes are selling for. They're each selling for $1.3 million now. 1.3. So 1.3 times four, what is that? $5.2 million. So 20 years ago, I could have potentially built those for 1.8 and change. They'd be worth 5.2 and change today. Okay. And arguably speaking, if I would have been able to rent them and find a way to rent them out over 20 years, they could be potentially be free and clear. With that one transaction, I could have never had to do another deal again with that one transaction. So the point I said to myself, and I, this point I said to myself was, if I ever see something like that happen again, don't be so yeah. scared, you know what, to, uh, to pull the trigger again. And I just shared with you some things that are happening in Edmonton that I'm buying land positions right now in the 300 range or less. I think we just bought one for 280, 269, 283, I think it was, 283, for a 7,500 square foot lot, 50 by 150 or 50 by 148. There, there, some of them are different sizes. For under $300,000, they can be subdivided. And when you're done, you can have two houses with six units over the two of them, okay? And our build costs are going to be, let's call it roughly like 1.7 million. So I'm seeing an awful lot of the same numbers starting to surface again that I saw 20 years ago in, in, uh, in, in Burnaby, British Columbia. Now, I'm not here to say in any way, shape or form, Edmonton is going to go to Burnaby, British Columbia numbers. But I can guarantee when I'm running my calculations if I'm building a six-unit property for $1.7 million and I'm getting the financing from CMHC with fairly low down payment after we're all said and done, and when I run my cash flow calculations, they are positive cash flow on a, on a fairly significant basis, I can sit 10 years and I can wait and hopefully that may become, it may never come to those valuations, but I can sit for 10 years and I can wait for all the market appreciation to kick in at that time because I'm sitting on some good assets in good areas that attract amazing tenant profiles and they cash flow. I sure hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we jump back to the conclusion, our strategic partners from Streetwise Mortgages are here with another important mortgaging tip. All right, take it away, Dahlia. Hi. If you currently have a mortgage with an advanceable line of credit component with any of the big banks, such as the Step Mortgage with Scotiabank, the Home Power Plan with CIBC, the RBC Home Line Plan, BMO's Home Owner Ready Line, or the National Bank All-in-One, then this message is for you. By now, you would have received a letter from your bank outlining upcoming changes to the advanceable mortgage products that will take effect on November the 1st. But before I get into the details of the letter and how this change impacts you, I'd like to go through a quick refresher of what an advanceable mortgage is. Essentially, an advanceable mortgage combines a mortgage with a line of credit, which acts like a home equity line of credit referred to as a HELOC. And with the banks, a HELOC or line of credit cannot exceed 65% of the value, but between the mortgage and the line of credit, together they can get up to 80% of the home value at the time the loan was approved. 
This 80% is referred to as the global limit. And as you make payments towards your mortgage, the credit limit on the line would increase in an amount equal to the principal that you're paying down on the mortgage. When you make a mortgage payment, essentially, you uh, basically have two components. It's split into two components. There is a principal pay down and there is an interest component. So let's take an example. Let's say that your mortgage payment is $1,000 and out of that $1,000, 700 goes towards paying down your principal and 300 goes towards paying down the interest. Now, the $700 is what I'm referring to here. That is the amount of principal pay down that would increase the limit on the line of credit by an equivalent amount if you have an advanceable mortgage product. So you're essentially re-accessing what you've paid down on the mortgage through the line of credit. And this is a great feature that many homeowners and investors alike um, enjoy. Now, 15 months ago, OSFI, the financial services regulator, introduced a new role uh, to basically limit how consumers or borrowers with advanceable mortgages can reborrow any paid down principal. And basically what they want is they want, they don't want um, anybody to reborrow money above 65% of the value of the property at the time the loan was approved. This change is going to take effect on November the 1st for the big six banks and uh, January the 1st for most other federally regulated lenders. OSFI expects that any and all lending above 65% of the loan to value, which cannot exceed 80%, will be both amortizing and non-advanceable. That's what the regulator says. Also, the principal payments applied to the portion above the 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall authorized limit or the global limit until that global limit reduces to 65%. Okay, I had to read this 20 times before I understood what this really means. And it was easier for me to actually understand Spanish than to understand what this is all about. So let me walk you through what it means through an example. Recently, I received my Scotia Step uh, letter informing me of the change. I'm not going to read it all, but will highlight the key paragraph that says the following. Beginning November 2023, your step global limit will gradually reduce to 65% over the next 25 years. This will take effect through monthly reductions of $157 to your step global li limit. Now, let's get into the translation of what that really means. Consider a case where a borrower has a million dollars house and a combined global limit uh, of mortgages and line of credits as follows. Mortgage component number one is at $150,000. Mortgage component number two is at $250,000. And uh, the client has a $400,000 revolving line of credit. So altogether, we're at 80%. The rule essentially says the following. And here's the key concept. 
The key concept is that the principal payments applied to any portion above 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall global limit until this overall limit shrinks to 65%. In this example, mortgage number two of $250,000 along with the line of credit of $400,000 make up 65% of the value of the house, which is a million dollars. So any dollars you pay down on mortgage component number one, which is the portion representing more than the 65%, under the old rules, it used to advance over to the line, but under the new rules will no longer advance over to the line and instead that will gradually shrink your borrowing ability from recycling within that 80% box to eventually you know getting to a 65% over time so that's the idea here they're trying to limit how much money you can recycle within that 80% so that gradually over time that amount shrinks to 65% is what this really says. In the Scotia example that I shared with you earlier, the $157 that I read in the letter is basically that gradual monthly reduction in the global limit. It is not something that I'm going to pay out uh, for, uh, you know, myself instead, as I pay down the mortgage, instead of being able to re-access that 157 on the line of credit, it will now go towards shrinking the overall global limit from 80% to 65%. So here's the thing, this amount will differ from one client to another, it will differ from one bank to another, but ultimately the end game is the same for everybody who has this product. Borrowers will end up with re-advanceable mortgages that have a global limit that cannot exceed 65% over time. And if they're starting at 80% over time, that number will go down to 65%. And the difference is that some lenders will get you there uh, more, you know, uh, like faster than some other lenders. So if you're readvanceable mortgage, <clears throat> if you got an advanceable mortgage before September 15th, 2012, that's when this B20 regulation took effect, that product will be grandfathered. You don't have to worry. So none of what I'm talking about here applies to you. But everyone uh, who set up their product past that deadline will be impacted. So if you decide to refinance today and you qualify for an 80% with a mortgage and a HELOC, yes, you're going to start at 80%, but over time, again, this will bring you to the 65%. So this rule applies for new uh, advanceable mortgages that are being set up as we speak. If you have received this letter from your bank and you would like to explore new options to continue to access capital, reach out to my team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Are you excited, Man, I, El Rey? Are you ready to get out there? Are you, when are you going to get out there and start buying some yourself, my brother? Pump, pump. And to be honest, like, 
and I think you spoke about this in one of one of one of your uh, podcast episodes. But I am noticing that that's where where the opportunity lies for sure. There's a, a lot of properties that are up for sale that you're just getting them at lot value. The houses are ready to be demoed and it's a big size lot and there's just so much potential in it. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I'm, it's, it, there is a lot of people looking for the same kind of thing a little bit. But at the same time, you know, I just call up my trusty friend who's a fantastic at finding these kind of deals. And I'm just saying, you know, Jay, you know, let's go find another property. And he goes, yeah, got lots on the go right now. Just let me know when you're ready. And I said, I'm ready. Okay. Oh, he, his, his comment is, and this is what you know when you have a good realtor, is I, when I say I'm ready, you know, we're ready to go. His, his comment is how soon and how many? That's his, that's his reply back to me. Most, most realtors, their comment is, well, let me put you on a search and I'll sit, put you on an MLS drip search and an email thing like that. No, I, I want my realtor, um, and I know that's no different than what you're trying to do with your clients as well. I want my realtor to have an inventory of items sitting there. And when I come and say, I want the best you got, give me the best you got because we're ready, I want him to present me with a handful of opportunities that all make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now Russell, I just want to go back to, I know you said this is like, this is like a prime time. It's a prime opportunity in the current economic cycle. Do you try and time your investments based on economic cycles? Uh, what approach do you take? Yeah. Do you believe in like the more? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No worries. Well, and I didn't mean to jump over you. Um, timing no. timing a market is, is, is difficult. It really is. There's, um, you'll never get it right. Everybody wants the, the perfect timing. Everybody wants it right. I believe there's, there's, shades of grayness when it comes to timing. Now, I'm also not here to tell people is timing's not important. It 100% is important. It's important. Like, for example, um, I bought an entire, let's call it 40 places in the year 2008. Um, I more than, it was more than 40 probably. I more than doubled my portfolio in one year back in 2008. And then after that, everything went completely down for, for decades. Things were flat and down for decades. Um, you don't think that I would have going back to 2008, tapped myself on the shoulder and said, yeah, you might want to slow down. The market's a little bit too much froth. It's, um, it's setting a, a record for unaffordability. There's a whole bunch of things coming in. Russ, you, you might not want to double your portfolio at a peak. And that's one of the things I've been advising a lot of my clients. Like, and, and I, I, I can't tell exactly, like, there's no way I can pinpoint down, but I'm seeing a few things surface that I've seen back in 2007, 2008 in the Alberta marketplace. I'm seeing those kind of things form in BC and Ontario in many select markets. In February of 2021, I started advising my inner circle people to gang, take a look at this, pay attention. Here's the things that are forming. You might want to sell off some of your bad properties in those marketplace. I would not want to take a long-term position. If you're going to do it short the market in BC and Ontario, short market meaning maybe do a flip and do something quick in and out, uh, capitalize on some froth. But um, now's the time to start divesting of the bad properties in BC and Ontario and start moving those property uh, money and that capital back into Alberta again. Was I was I close at on February 2021? No, I was about a year off, to be honest. But um, March of 2022, the market started to dive and started to dip in, in those marketplaces. 
And then all of a sudden they had a little revival again and they started on the upswing again. And, and those markets with the latest rental, uh, rental interest rate increase just recently have, um, have gone cold again. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing prices come off in those unaffordable markets in Ontario and BC. I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing that for at least the next year. And my prediction for those marketplaces, and I'm going to go way out on a limb on this and only time will tell if I'm right. Um, I don't see a fundamental collapse. Now, the reason why I don't see a fundamental collapse is because there's such a housing shortage. There's so many people moving into those marketplaces. They're very desirable for people to want to live there. And there's such a shortage of housing. So I, won't, I don't see a fundamental collapse. But I also see on the top side that there is some huge headwinds. And those huge headwinds are the affordability numbers that people, first-time homebuyers, just can't afford to buy a house in those marketplaces. So I don't see a collapse and I don't see a giant spike. In, in there. So what does that say? To me, that says you're, there's probably going to be lots of years of flatness in Ontario and British Columbia. And those two markets of Ontario and BC are so difficult to be landlords, to be rental housing providers in those marketplaces. If you ain't getting uh, aggressive a asset appreciation numbers in those marketplaces, how excited are you about being a rental housing provider in those marketplaces where it's going to be flat maybe for years to come? So uh, many people in those marketplaces who have seen some really good gains, uh, maybe it's time to pull some of those gains off the table and get it invested into the next market that's going to start poised to go up. And I believe that's going to be Alberta. So I answered your question, but didn't answer your question. The simplest way to say is I cannot time exactly when it's going to happen. I can probably tell within a year or two about things. And you're only, you only know when you actually look back on time, right? To truly look back on time. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm quite confident on what, and I'm sorry, I have my certainty about what I believe is going to happen. And I'm letting my actions dictate that going forward. So, um, will I be right or wrong? Yes, I will be right and wrong all at the same time, yeah. but I do have some certainty that I believe it gives me enough footing and confidence to move forward. That's a great answer. And you know, Russell, I was actually, I was going to ask you, one of the questions I had in mind was you invest throughout Canada and, you know, places like BC, Ontario, they, they well known for appreciation and places like Alberta, um, is more known for cash flow, right? And I wanted to ask you how you go about balancing that portfolio of assets, you know, between the appreciation and the cash flow. But after your answer, I'm leaning more towards um, you probably do it more on a, on a large scale economic factor, like yep. what's going on, depending would, would sort of dictate where you sort of push your capital or your your, your focus towards. Yep. Am, am I right on that? One hundred percent. So, so there's. I'm just gonna. I'm just trying to remember all the conversation things that I can say with that. That's a big question and an excellent it question, is. by the way. Um, okay, so so number one, I'll give you a reason why a, BC, a lot of BC markets and Ontario markets have probably lots of appreciation, and that typically comes down to the governance and the government, and it's a lot of those key markets are landlocked, meaning where I live here in BC, in Vancouver, a suburb of Vancouver, there's a U.S. border on one side, there's an ocean on another, and there's mountains on the north side, so really there's only a couple directions you can go, and that's up. And that's maybe down the valley. So it's landlocked. The land value is very high. Okay. Now, 
in Edmonton, typically up until recently, um, they were a little bit more generous on subdivisions and stuff. Like they literally would sit there, go, "Oh, look, a canola field out there on the other side of the Anthony Henday. The only thing I can see next on the on the going out west is well, we can keep going until we hit Jasper, <laughs> right?" And literally, we'd knock down a canola field, and you got a new subdivision, and the urban sprawl was crazy. Um, yeah. That was a that was a, a risk that I saw in Edmonton. But if you actually dive into the economics of of the city, they've actually put in their plan. There, you can go find it. The places their what is it? The Edmonton Economic Development Plan. They have an entire growth plan. I, they have a name for it, which is escaping me here. But they have a detailed plan. And their detailed plan is they don't want to go out. They, they believe the footprint of Edmonton is as large as they would like it right now. Because as you start building out, you need more roads, you need more sewers, the garbage trucks have to go further. Um, they're just spreading out their, their tax base over a wider area, and it just costs more money to, to do that. So what they've now done is they're now densifying in. That's why they're approving a lot of those infill developments. They're actually... Think about it from a standpoint, from a city planner, you can densify inner city. You don't have to put any more sewers in. You don't have to put any more roads in. Your garbage trucks don't have to potentially go any further. You just have to, and then you, you increase your tax base. So you make more money and invest less. That makes sense. So that's one of the reasons why I believe um, the land values in certain areas in, in um, Alberta, Edmonton, Calgary, are going to start going up as well, because they're, they're putting artificial landlocks on things. Okay, so that's the first one is appreciation versus that, um, different markets. Now, the cash flow, I, I view cash flow as um, not until the pro... I'm sorry, back up. Once the properties are free and clear with no mortgages on it, that's when you can actually have free-flowing cash flow to live off of. While you still have mortgages on the properties, cash flow, in my personal opinion, is risk mitigation. Okay. You need to have good, strong cash flow in order to pour back into your properties to be able to, with the maintenance, and if you have any challenging time on economic cycles that happen or tenancies or repairs, that cash flow can get reinvested back in and you can hold the property longer if you have the cash flow to hold it. Okay, so you can hold the property while you're waiting for the appreciation and while the, the mortgages are being paid down, you can afford to hold it in those markets out in Ontario and British Columbia. The only model that works is speculation because they're not cash flowing. You are essentially feeding that property every single month and thank goodness that you can sell it for more in the future. But what happens if you can't, right? What happens if you can't? Like, honestly... Um, that, in my opinion, is not a good investment. And it just truly comes down to the difference between investing versus speculating. Alberta is investing. Those other markets are speculating. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm speculating that Alberta is going to go up in value. I'm speculating that it's going to be worth more when I come time to sell. But I don't need that speculation in order to hold the property over the next 7 to 10 to 15 years. <clears throat> there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of gold in that, Russell. Um... You know, when I when I talk to newer investors versus older investors, the newer ones, their goals are I wanna get a few rental properties and I wanna live off the cash flow. And oftentimes I tell them exactly what you said is it it it, it is risky because you know, 
properties that were cash flow in last year before all the interest hike are some of them aren't cash flow in or they 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 barely cash flow in or they cash flow negative and when i speak to seasoned investors a lot of them say that they don't they don't take the cash flow they don't use the cash flow that just goes into their reserve fund to hold the property longer because you know you have these big unexpected expenses that pop up or there could be an economic shift and you know that helps you hold on to the property um so i absolutely love that and to be honest when i first got exposed to the realm of investing i was also under that opinion like how many properties do i need to own so that that covers my living expenses and i've i've had that i've had that shift is that cash flows sort of just it's 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 that balance of um or it's that safety net on like how 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 extreme things can get at with with you being able to still hold the property um so yeah now don't don't get me wrong when mindset. i say that I, I i'm just being real and honestly don't get me wrong i i wish the cash flow i want the cash flow to be as high as possible and i want to be able to take big giant vacations based upon the cash flow and make the joke sometimes if there's if there is surplus cash flow at the end of the year that we distribute it to partners we say to, and we do it around Christmas. We say ca- uh, Christmas is on the house this year, right? Um, don't yeah. get me wrong. I, I, if it's there, uh, by all means, we're distributing. But I also am just very mindful at the same time about that. We have to be prepared if it's uh, that we have to put um, some capital back in, and that's one of the reasons why I've also shifted into new construction. Like I've shifted into new construction properties because if you actually can purpose build your property purpose build it with the right materials, the right design, the right layout, the right sweet mix, the right sizes. If you can purpose build it and it's under warranty, right? You literally have the new home warranty of a lot of those big ticket items are covered. You actually can run a little tighter on your reserve fund because the property is brand new. And and arguably speaking, for the first potentially five to seven years, your expenses will be next to nothing on a maintenance side of things. And don't get me wrong, you always have maintenance expenses, um, but they could be next to nothing. And, and, I, and I know this for a fact because I have new properties and I have 45-year-old townhomes at the same time. And on my year-end statements, it is as plain as black and white which ones are bad performers and which ones are the good performers. And the new properties, um, they just perform really well. Like, and I'll give you, maybe I'll give a real-life example. Let's do a real-life example. It's past winter, Edmonton. It was unfortunately minus four hundred degrees below zero. <laughs> the uh, furnace crapped out on on one of my new things. It just stopped working. Okay, and so the tenant phoned the property manager. The property manager phoned over to um, the, for the warranty because it was still under warranty. It was still brand new, essentially a brand new furnace within a couple of years. Um, a warranty call was put in. The t- they came out, they fixed it under warranty. I paid a little extra because I wanted to have a rush or I wanted to have it rush fixed. And it was uh, a couple hundred bucks at the most. I think it was maybe two, 250, maybe 300 at the most. If that was on one of my older properties, I would have been probably spending three, $4,000 to probably have to put a new furnace in because the, the furnaces are old. So from a time perspective... Tenant, phone property manager, property manager sent me an email note. I replied with two email notes and it was handled. So it was none of my time and it was a very little expense and uh, a good experience for everybody, owner, property manager, and tenant. But if that was one of my older places and I had to repair a furnace in the middle of winter, good luck trying to find somebody to, to do it. 
and the tenants are, you know, freezing at the same time and all that kind of stuff too. So uh, just pivoted over to new construction and it was like a breath of fresh air when I did that. Absolutely, because there's there's no deferred maintenance that you have to account for. So, you know, everything has a longer lifespan. Of course, things happen, like you mentioned, but in general, you, you can you can afford to have that lower reserve. Yep. It just um, goes it goes back to just risk mitigation. And and I have these conversations all the time. And and I have these conversations with myself. I will always sit there and I'll ask, you know, what if? Like what what can go wrong? What happens if this? What happens if this? What happens to this? And I really just kind of dump it all on the table about what can go wrong. Okay. And then I sit there and go, okay, that's that's an honest, healthy conversation to have. Now how do we mitigate each of those things? And that's just what we've doing. been doing this over 23 years is slowly, I can't say it'll be 100% risk mitigated, but I literally try to clean up the system each and every day to try to have it as virtually as low as risk as possible. Because, you know, I'm getting a little older and the, the runway ain't as long, you know, one or two missteps. And, and when the runway is a little shorter, you know, those, those are pretty devastating when you get a little bit older. So, um... Some fun, just having an awful lot of fun with that. You know, I think that's why you are known as the JV Jedi, just because that's one thing that your partners are going to ask you. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? And if you've kind of accounted for all of that, you know, it sort of, it helps put their mind at ease. Um, yep. Russell, it's, 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 sort of, it's time for one of my favorite segments of the show, and I call this time capsule. Okay, so let's, let's imagine that you've stumbled across a time machine that allows you to travel back and forth in time. Can't change anything, but you can give and receive advice from your younger or older self. First, let's go back to when you were 18. What advice would you give your younger self with the knowledge you have now? Now, this can be within business, investing, your personal life in general, or just a combination of them all. Yeah. Um, okay, so the advice, if I actually, you know, great question, first of all, and if I actually pragmatically really thought about it, the advice that I would give to my 18-year-old self, I think my 18-year-old self would have been too stupid to hear it and not would have done anything with it. So, so first and foremost, okay, let's go 30 year old. No, no, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I am gonna answer that question. Um, I would tell my 18-year-old self uh, the following: I would, instead of giving any specifics of things, I would just tell the 18-year-old self that you know you're stronger than you think. You have tremendous amount of gifts that you've been given, and um, you have an incredible opportunity and a responsibility in front of you that lays there because you've been blessed with so many amazing people. And the advice, the best advice I would give my 18-year-old self is be very open when old 50-year-old people come and talk to you and give you advice, and don't be so stupid and close-minded not to listen to it. So listen to the people that have been down there before. You don't know everything. You don't. Listen to the people that have been down it. You don't have to take all their wisdom at gospel, but don't be close-minded to those people from the future that are coming back to tell you some really important lessons to learn. And at the same time, the, the, next le the, the specific thing I would say with, with that is, uh, 18-year-old Russ, your hair is falling out. That's okay. Peaceful acceptance. Shave it. Shave your head earlier than you thought. 
because you have a really nice head and the, you'll look better with a bald head than when you will with, with your hairline. So those are the two pieces of advice I'd give them. I love both. I yeah. love both, Ross. Honestly, um, firstly, yeah, you don't have to learn from learn lessons from your own mistakes. And I think everyone has lessons that, 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 that uh, you can learn from, you know. Um, I love that advice because when you're younger, you're, just, you, you're more reluctant to just, they don't know what they're talking about you know, um, and just brush it off. I think people who, who, who have lived longer than us have, have that wisdom that we can, can, we can take. Now, the second piece of advice I love as well, because I've always said to myself, I even said to my wife, like, if there ever comes a point where you feel like I should call it, let me know. If it starts at the back and I can't see it, I want to know. <laughs> I'd rather just pull a Vin Diesel, you know. Hopefully by then I have the muscle to support it. But... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> now, now looking, looking ahead to your 80th birthday, what advice do you imagine your future self would offer your present self at your current age? Wow. My future self, what would I offer? Um, I would, first and foremost, I would thank him. I would thank my 80-year-old self um, for all the lessons, the easy ones and the painful ones that we've put through. I would thank, I would just be pure... I'd come from a heart space and I would be in pure gratitude. I would thank my 80-year-old self for making some decisions, making the tough decisions, um, developing the skills, meeting the right people, and getting that strength to when things look sometimes quite dire and things look quite difficult, that just stuck to it. And you know what? 80-year-old self, you know, nice guys. Potentially, they always say nice guys finish last. I maybe nice guys eventually maybe lose a battle, but they always will win the war. So, congratulations, 80 year old self, that you stuck to your guns. You were truly authentic to who you were. And um, thank you on behalf of the million people that you've impacted over the years. I wanted to just thank you for that. I love that, Ross. Like, and to be honest, um, that wasn't even what I asked, but I love that answer even did better. I, did I ask? I, did I answer it wrongly? <laughs> you, did it, you did it the wrong way, but to be honest, I feel like maybe that should be a question because oh. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love the mental space. That we, honestly, Sorry, that I thought I was, I was going into the future and talking to my 80-year-old self, and I was thinking, you were, but, <laughs> okay, but what, what, what would you What would your 80-year-old self tell you now? Like, oh. If you had to put yourself in your 80-year-old self shoes, oh. what advice do you think they would give you? Um, but no, I love that. Yeah. That was a brilliant answer, man. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I guess I answered it rightly the wrong way. I guess. Just the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome, brother. Awesome. Um, hey, do you mind if so, I have a final? Yeah. I know we're. I know I don't want to jump over you here a second, but I do have some final thoughts I want to share with some people yes. here, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I know I asked uh, something before is I will, I do always do a lot of, you know, the what ifs, what if something can go wrong and what if we, we need to mitigate this and what if we don't do this and what happens here and whatever. Um, the last thing I'm going to share with everybody is um, the what if question is very powerful, but it goes both directions. Most people will always come out of from a standpoint of what can go wrong. What if this goes wrong? Um, I actually tell people is to think about is what if it goes right? What if you do make the right decision? What if you do jump in with both feet? What if you do learn how this game works? What if you meet the right people on your journey? You don't even know the true power 
power of what you can accomplish by asking what if it goes right. And by all means, just ask that better question. You know, what if? What if this all works out? What if I take the action? What if I make the decision? What if I go ask out the girl that on that date when I see her across the room? What if I buy this piece of property and in 20 years time, it goes from 1.8 to 5.2? What if is a very powerful question on the positive side as well. I couldn't agree more. Like just looking back at, at, at our conversation, you know, the, the, the one regret that you mentioned was, wasn't a regret from doing something, but from not doing it and not jumping on that opportunity, right? Um, so absolutely, we, we, we regret the things we, we don't do more than the things that we do. I agree. Super powerful question. Ask better questions, get better answers. So um, I love that. I love that. Thank you for adding yeah. that bit in. Honestly, thank you. Um, now for all the listeners out there, this isn't where the fun ends. Um, I'm leaving all of Russell's information down below. So go check him out. As I'm sure you can tell, won't be disappointed. But Russell, I wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing your remarkable insights. Honestly, this was super fun. I'd love to do it again. Yeah, honored to serve anytime, my friend. Thank you. So gang, what did you think? Did you enjoy this episode? It was kind of a little sneak peek. It was a little sneak peek kind of into what I was doing. You know, I almost kind of tickled the surface a little bit, did a little, you know, tease on that. But rest assured, if you guys are subscribing to my podcast, you're going to hear everything. I'm going to share numbers. I'm going to share entire case studies. I'm going to share, you know, financing. I'm going to share, um, you know, I've had a conversation with Nadeem a couple of times and we're going to talk about financing case studies and we're just going to share all the details uh, with you. So if you are interested in being part of that journey and learning about, you know, in essence, this is a, a new direction that I'm heading. This is the, you know, you don't get too many chances to, to, to take another stab and another kick at the can and, and take another and start in, in essence, almost starting over. I've built a portfolio of properties into one area and one type. Um, I'm now divesting of a lot of those other assets and I'm going full on into my, into a new ventures that I'm doing right now. And you are getting to see this right from the ground up. So stick around guys. More episodes are coming. I got some wonderful episodes on getting started. I got some wonderful stories from entrepreneurs on how they're making cash flow in, in their portfolio. I have some wonderful case studies on new small tier developments. And we're actually starting to analyze large properties right now, like 11 lots, 28 rental units, 90 unit apartment building blocks of doing new construction. And that's where we're going with this is this is just truly the tip of the iceberg and the sky is truly the limit. Okay, gang, make sure you're dialed in, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you share all these episodes because then always remember in every interaction you have with another person, always leave them feeling inspired, encouraged, and always come from a place of love. Bye for now, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Russell Westcott Podcast. Before you run off, could you do us one final favor? Wherever you're listening to this episode, we encourage you to leave a review, share with your friends, and subscribe so you can receive the latest episode to keep you feeling inspired and encouraged for the entire week. Visit www.russellwestcott.com for more information, support resources, and upcoming speaking engagements near you. 
Bye for now.